you'd like to follow along with the message this morning, there's an outline provided in the bulletin where you can take notes or just track what it is we are doing this morning. Well, the decorations are down. We've probably had a week or two to take a breather in. Perhaps your decorations are not down. I guess I should not assume anything. But we're coming off of Christmas, and many of us may feel relieved that you no longer need to purchase gifts for anyone. It can be hard to pick out gifts for people, especially for adults. You see, adults rarely need things because they have the resources to get what they want oftentimes, at least the things they need. They may have a job, they may at least have some money, they might be able to go online to get something or to go to the store. But it is way easier to buy for a child. Young children especially have no way of getting things in their own power, unless you consider puppy dog eyes to their grandparents' power to purchase things. I don't think that's currency at Walmart, though. See, they cannot earn things because they do not work. They cannot go shopping because they do not drive, and so they depend on gifts, which is why if you have ever been around young children, they voraciously receive gifts, recognizing that is the only way they can receive things. It is their time to get stuff. And so our passage today speaks about receiving the kingdom of God like a child. Jesus calls us to have this dependent attitude of a child receiving a gift. And that is contrasted with a rich man who has everything and is unfamiliar with the very concept of need. And so our passage today deals with the subject of money. 2016 has really started with a bang here in the Gospel of Mark. We started with hell and last week divorce and this week money. I'm, I'm going to call off next week. I'm not sure what, what we're doing, but this, it's, it's getting worse. I can see that. But I'm going to look at Mark chapter 10 as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark. So that's Mark 10, verses 13 through 31. If you'd like to open your Bibles, uh, if you brought your own or the Pew Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you speak to us and that you have preserved for us your holy word, that we may know you. That you have revealed to us yourself, your character, and especially we have seen your great character revealed in Jesus Christ who walked among us, the very God in the flesh. And so, Lord, help us to see Jesus today. In spirit, speak to our hearts through the word today that we would grow closer to you through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So from this passage, it is clear that we are to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And so then the implication is that we must be willing to let go of the things of the world, those cares of adult life, those things that make it feel like we don't have need in order to follow Jesus, in order to receive the kingdom of God. And so we're going to go through this passage today and see how the message of the kingdom of God sends shockwaves through our value system and especially the values of this world. So this passage starts in a weird way. It starts almost like a job interview with two different applicants for a job. But the disciples here self-appoint themselves as kind of a HR committee for people who are interested in following Jesus. They conduct the first line of interviews. They screen the resumes. And we see two applicants. First, we see children who are brought to Jesus by their parents in order that Jesus would bless these children. We don't know exactly how old the children are, but they are young enough that they are still under the authority and care of their parents and that their parents can actually bring them. They may have been kicking and screaming. We don't know. And the disciples rebuke the parents for bringing these children to Jesus. We've seen from the previous passages that the disciples see children as an inconvenience that they cannot help Jesus' cause. They cannot wield power and influence. They are needy people, and the disciples need to build a revolution. They need soldiers. They need advocates. They don't need kids. They're of no help. 
And so that's their first applicant, children. Then they get a new applicant showing up, a pious or holy religious rich man. He runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. He addresses Jesus as good teacher. He seeks eternal life. He obeys the commands of God. And most importantly, he is wealthy. To the disciples, this man is the perfect candidate to join their group. He is exactly what they need. He is a powerful man committed to the cause who has resources at their disposal. And so the disciples would have gladly started filing his paperwork to sign him up so that the 12 could become the 13. Come on in. We'd love to have someone like you. Because this pious rich man could have helped build the Jesus brand. He probably had access to the kinds of influential people that the disciples were hoping to reach. That if they needed funding for any reason, he could surely provide it. And so the disciples seem completely justified in keeping away the little kids and focusing on the big fish, the ones that will really help the cause. But Jesus corrects them. When the disciples chastise the parents for bringing children to Jesus, Jesus then has to chastise his disciples as if they were children. He says to them, hey, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, this new era of God's rule over the world, is bringing in people like these children. It belongs to them. It is not for the powerful. It is not for the important. It is not for the wealthy. It is for the weak, the needy, and the helpless. That's because the kingdom of God does not work like the kingdoms of men. And the disciples struggle to comprehend this because their values are based on this world, on external, worldly things. But that's not what God focuses on. We learn that all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, when God sent Samuel to find a new king because the tall, handsome, strapping man Saul failed... Samuel went looking for another tall, handsome warrior. And God told Samuel, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's never been about outward appearance for God. God's kingdom is based on internal things like character, heart, and need. It doesn't matter if we're weak according to the world. It doesn't matter if we're needy people. In fact, that is a very good thing. But like the disciples, we can struggle to understand this kingdom perspective. How often are we swayed by the things of this world instead of what God values? I know I am, and I can freely admit that. I struggle with this. I can struggle with it in really simple ways, like seeing new faces in the church. If I meet a guy who comes in carrying his own Bible with highlighters in it and everything, and he's dressed nicely, and he seems to know what he wants to do, and he seems like he has an important job, like, we got to get this guy. He is of great value. This is someone who's really quality material for the church. But if I see someone else, someone else who appears to be needy, someone who's going to draw resources instead of bring them in, 
someone who's going to take time and energy and a lot of heartache to care for, what do I think of them? Do I avoid them? Does my self-centered heart and worldly values take over looking for people that will build a business, build a community, build a kingdom of our own instead of asking, what is God's kingdom about? Am I looking for people who's going to make my life easier or who though might bring difficulty? Do I value what the world values or what God values? How do we struggle with that? I know it's a struggle for me. Perhaps we defer to those with external status. Maybe we look around and find those people that are more important according to the world and we seek their opinion first, overlooking the least of these. And when we do care for the least of these, those who seem less important, are we doing it to make ourselves feel better? Like, oh, I looked at that person first. Or are we doing it because we actually care? Because we value all people in the kingdom. We see even those who are the neediest as of great value in the eyes of God. You see, we tend to value the wrong things because we are naturally members of this world. We value status, comfort, control, influence. And we need God to readjust our value system, to change the measurements, the values in our lives, to bring them in line with the kingdom of God. We need the Spirit of God to fill us, to give us eyes to see how He sees things, to not look at the outside, but at the heart and at God's heart. This takes time. In fact, it'll take being like a child learning letters and numbers again to understand the values of the kingdom. And the disciples seem to fail again and again, just like kids do with simple math problems. And we will fail again and again with these value systems. He says we must be like children. We must relearn this new kingdom way. And that makes sense because to enter the kingdom of God, we must receive it like a child. So he says in verse 15 that the kingdom belongs to them, but to enter the kingdom, we must receive it like a child. And this language of entering the kingdom is picked up again with the rich man. In that encounter, we see Jesus takes the values of the kingdom and applies them in a way that blows the disciples' minds. Though this pious rich man who is outwardly obeying every single thing, he seems like the ideal candidate to join their group. Jesus says something that leads him away. Instead of catering to the powerful and bringing them on his side, he says something that leads him away. After hearing that this man desires eternal life and has not broken any commandments, we see that Jesus loves him. He sees sincerity in this man, a desire to obey God's law. And there's certainly a lot to commend this guy for. But Jesus also sees that this is not the way of the kingdom. You see, Jesus wanted to show his disciples that entering the kingdom of God is not about what we have. It's about what we don't have. There's a difference. It doesn't matter what we have. It matters what we don't have. When Jesus said we must receive the kingdom of God like a child, he means we must receive it as a totally dependent person. 
We must accept it freely as a gift, recognizing we have nothing to offer in this transaction. We have to see our need, not our worth. We depend on it as a gift, in the same way that children receive gifts. And we receive it simply out of love. See, this childlike need to receive something freely was something the rich man was completely unfamiliar with. He was used to having everything. Security, wealth, status, power, respect. He had it all. And Jesus is saying that none of those things helped him get into the kingdom of God. In fact, he says the exact opposite, that those things are a hindrance He tells him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, in order for this man to see his need, he had to give up what he had to see that even when he had nothing, he was welcome in the kingdom. He needed to feel needy. He had to see that his wealth was of no eternal value. And this grieved the rich man. He cherished his possessions too much. They were too important for him. The disciples thought the rich man had everything necessary to follow Jesus. He looked like the perfect guy who would come and follow him. Except he lacked one thing. He lacked lack. He needed need. For this reason, Jesus warns his disciples three times how difficult it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. And the third time he says that he uses that crazy image that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is crazy talk. I mean, we saw it up here. That horse is only this big. Camels are bigger than that, just if you've never seen a camel. They're really big. It's not like they had giant needles back then either, you know. They weren't sewing together fabric that covered a whole city. They had the same needles. It's like, that is not possible. He is clearly saying wealth is a significant hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. Our New Testament reading says as much as well. The Apostle Paul writes that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He warns the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And that gets to the root of the problem. Wealth is an easy thing to trust. In the eyes of the world, wealth provides security and status and comfort. It gives us pride. But Paul tells us that riches are uncertain. See, we can be easily deceived by wealth. Many see wealth as a blessing. And guess what? That's true. Everything that we receive from God is a blessing. But wealth can be easily rationalized by looking at people wealthier than us. That is such an easy exercise. If I ask all of you to picture someone wealthy in your head, I guarantee you're not picturing yourself. That there's someone wealthier than you in your mind, that is the standard for wealthy. I do it. Absolutely I do it. That wealth is easily rationalized. That we can look and say, I'm not as rich as that person. So clearly, they're the ones who Paul is speaking to, not me. Because we justify the wealth we do have because it provides us with security. 
But wealth provides us with security until it doesn't. Until we lose our job. Until the market takes a turn. Until a medical, an unexpected medical issue causes our account to start draining. You see, wealth is dangerous not only for the false sense of security it provides, but it also gives us a tangible thing that the world values that gives us security. It's a representation of what we have, reminding us that we are worth something, that we have value, we have means, we have some power. But to enter the kingdom of God, to heed the words of Jesus, we must see that we have nothing of value to enter that kingdom. There is no price tag on that kingdom. No amount of wealth or possessions can give us comfort in the next life. We must only receive it as a gift. Freely as a child who has nothing. The piggy banks even run out for this child. We've got nothing to offer. We must come with open hands saying, I need that gift. But wealth is not the only hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. In fact, this passage shows us a wealth of problems that can keep us from entering the kingdom of God like a child. The rich man was told to leave behind his great wealth, but others will be called to leave other things. Peter makes this point in verse 28. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now this takes us back to the gospel of Mark at the very beginning when Jesus called Peter and the other fishermen. They left their nets, they left their boats, and they followed him. And some of us are like, what happened to the boats? Like, did they just sit there? And then we read in chapter 2 about Levi, the tax collector, and Jesus calls him and he leaves his post. He just leaves. Imagine there was some money at that table that he left behind. And so it makes us wonder, what are they having to leave? See, Jesus commends Peter and the other followers who left behind things of value in order to follow him. And he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. What Jesus lists there, that he's commending them for leaving, are not bad things. He's not saying those who have left behind drunkenness and envy and anger and greed, but mother child, home. They are good things we would consider blessings from God, our family, our home, our lands, our source of income. But what does it mean to leave those things? Surely Jesus does not want parents to abandon their children. No, that is not true at all. We see from the Gospel of Mark that though the disciples give up the, fi- the fishing boats and the nets, We see him like two chapters later on a boat again. And so where'd that boat come from? They still had it in some way. We see the the Gospel of Mark talks about them returning to the house. And you're like, what house is that? Well, chapter 1 talks about Peter and Andrew's house, Peter's brother Andrew, that his mother-in-law was in that house and sick, and it's in Capernaum. And so he has a house where his family lives, so he still has that house. So this passage is not saying that all of us need to go shun all family relationships and jobs, empty our bank accounts, and live as nomadic wanderers. So please, don't do that, okay? Your your family's going to get mad at me, and your boss too. 
What it says is we must return to the idea of receiving the kingdom of God like a child. That we must loosen our grip on these things that give us security and status in order to freely receive God's salvation and blessing in Jesus. You see, like the rich man's wealth, these good things can make us feel safe, can make us feel secure, can give us a pride, a sense of value that we are worth something. But the kingdom of God is for those who see their lack, their utter need of God to save them, that they say, I have nothing to offer. See, like wealth, other blessings in our lives can make us feel important. They can make us feel not needy. And it is that attitude of a needy, dependent child that is necessary to enter the kingdom. So for us, what hinders us from feeling needy? What good things in our lives give us a sense of security, of value? Turned around another way, what would grieve us most if we lost it? Is it our job? Is it that we have a consistent paycheck and a respectable job? Is it our reputation? Maybe that we're an honest person of integrity. What if we lost that? Is it our charitable giving, either to the church, to the little buckets down here, to some other charity? Do those things give us a sense of security? Do they make us feel like good people? Do they give us value? What about our family? Do we feel best when our family is in order? Do we feel secure when our children are safe and following the right path and completely and totally devastated like the world is falling apart when they do something we don't want? Are we horrified when our children misbehave in public or when they're older and bring shame to our family name? Maybe it's not our kids. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's our sense of value and security comes from knowing our parents are proud of us or chasing the approval of our parents that we've never been able to receive. See, we tend to trust these external forms of value. And it may not be money, but they are certainly valuable according to the world. And like the pious rich man, we may feel like if all those things are in order, if all of those good things are in order, then we are on the right path to God. But that's not what Jesus tells us here. He says, none of these blessings make it easier for us to get in the kingdom of God. In fact, if anything, these good things can become idols that make it hard for us to see our need, our dependency like children. See, the pious rich man seemed to have it all together. On the outside, you could look at him and go, oh yeah, God likes him. He's under control. He's good. He was godly, upright, wealthy, successful, well thought of. And yet all of those blessings hindered him from following Jesus. A perfect environment and life circumstances do not guarantee salvation, do not make it easier to follow God. Man, how easily deceived we are of that. But we have to remember, all the way back, Adam and Eve were in a perfect garden 
a literal problem-free life, and they fell. The most perfect environment any of, anyone has ever lived in, and they still fell. It helps remind us that children, even children who've grown up their whole lives in the church, multi-generations living in this church, can and will still fall away from the faith. Having them in the pews every Sunday morning is no guarantee of salvation. What the world sees as a perfect life does not necessarily lead us to God. And that helps make sense of the weirdest inclusion in this passage, which we see in verse 30. Jesus is talking about all the wonderful things that we receive if we leave behind the things of earth. He says, you will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. All of those things sound great, except for persecutions. Like, what? what wait, what? Why, why, why is that in there? Why, why must that be in the positive column? How is that a selling point to leave behind this and receive persecution? Persecutions shake our grip. They shake our trust away from material things. They bring upheaval in our lives in such a way that we're not sure what is stable anymore. And we must find something firm. Something that will hold in the storm. Persecutions remind us that as great as earthly blessings are in this life, they can be shaken. They can be taken away. They can be lost. They are by very definition unstable. We are left needing something to ground us, a solid rock on which to stand. And so like children, we must cry out to our Heavenly Father to protect us. In persecution, we must, in utter dependence, grab on to God, knowing he alone can keep us safe, no matter what is coming towards us. We remember that no matter what, he makes us feel safe and secure in this life. And earthly blessings, though they are great in this life, we can't take them with us in the next. They are of no comfort, no support whatsoever. I always like to think of the pharaohs who stored up in their pyramids all that cool stuff so they could take it with them to the next life. That is some dusty, gross stuff they have there. I don't think it helps them. It gives people like archaeologists a fun job, but it just doesn't help. And so it leaves us asking this question like the rich man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy had it all together. I bet all of us would have seen him and been like, I wish my life could have been like him. And yet he senses something. He is nagged by something that makes him fall down at the knees of Jesus and say, what must I do? He senses that something is incomplete. He senses there is some kind of lack in his life. Though he has everything anyone could ever want, it's not quite enough. All that he had worked for could have been taken away at any moment. It reminds us of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is listing all the wonderful things he has purchased, he has built, he has acquired, and it is pleasurable and wonderful and awesome. And it can go away like the wind. It is all vanity. It has no lasting value. You see, his work was incomplete to earn eternal life. 
this rich man recognized as much as he had done, as much as he had built, there was no assurance, no hope there. But there is another man's work who is not incomplete. There is another young man who came from wealth. Another young man who obeyed all of the commandments of God. And he gave up all of his wealth and became like a servant. He humbled himself, leaving the safety and security of home and family in order to serve God and those in need. And persecutions came to him. Yet he trusted God through it all, even to the point of death. Jesus did this. He did this for the rich man, and he did it for all of us. He lived the life we can never live, earning the inheritance we can never purchase. And he says, here it is. It is a gift for you. I didn't do this for myself. I did it for you so that you would receive it like a child. In this way, salvation is not available to the wealthiest. It is not only available to the most powerful. It is not only available to those who have the most time on their hands to go and meditate under some tree or on some mountain about the things of God. It is available to all who see they have need and are searching. It is the fullness. It is the completeness we all look for. It is for the least of these. And so Jesus is looking at you. And he loves you. And instead of saying, give it all up, he is saying, I have given it all up. And I have given it all up for you. Here it is. Do you see your need of my gift? See your need of God today. Give thanks for the way he has blessed you, certainly. Give thanks for the blessings in this life. But make sure your grip is loose. Grab on to that which is strong, to that inheritance, that treasure in heaven that Christ has prepared for you, to the God who keeps us safe in the storm, and follow him, trusting that whatever comes through this life, there is one thing that will not be shaken, and that is what Christ has done for you, what he has secured for you. That inheritance is secure. Thanks be to God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for us in such an amazing way. We try to build worldly kingdoms in this life. We trust so many things that are not you. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to see that nothing we have in this life prepares us for the next, that nothing we have in this life will ever satisfy us completely. If we only look to this life, to the things of this world for satisfaction, we will cry out like Solomon, there's nothing here. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us that completeness, the wealth that is unpurchasable, that value that is unbelievable, that you have given it to us freely as a gift. May we be humble enough to see that nothing we have, no goodness, nothing we do, is worth receiving it. But take it, knowing we are incomplete. May we know your great love for us, Jesus. Fill our hearts. May we leave aside those things that hinder us from coming to you. May we hold on to you, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.